welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Most data professionals aspire to be leaders within a single industry. It's rare to see professionals establish and reestablish themselves as powerful influencers across multiple verticals. But this is precisely what Dr. Alexander Bork has done, helping some of the world's most recognizable brands scale tangible value from data, analytics, and AI. In this episode, he covers a wide range of topics, including his personal career journey, creating cultures of innovation, centralized versus decentralized data products, and the imminent impact of generative AI. Today, your only true competitive differentiator is the experience you give to customers, partners, and teammates. And it all starts with data. Join the Virtual Beyond 2023 keynote on May 9th and 10th to find out how the world's most innovative businesses are bringing the modern data experience to life with ThoughtSpot. Register for free at ThoughtSpot.com slash go virtual. Alex, welcome to the Data Chief. Hey, Cindy. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me here. Yeah, no, I'm quite excited. I'm not sure if you already had somebody from Germany, so am I the first one, actually? Oh, gosh. Now you're going to make me have to think. We've had many guests from Europe, but you might be the first one from Germany, although Bernard Marr is actually German. That's true, yes. So where, where do we categorize yeah. him? <laughs> and now you already gave, gave it away. Where are you joining us from in Germany? I'm joining from the wonderful town of uh, Berlin, which is uh, a great place to be these days. It is a great place to be. have been there um, a number of times, um, especially, I think, more so when I was living in Switzerland. I would go to Berlin regularly. I feel like the last few years, it's been more Frankfurt or Munich. Why, why do we think that is? What's going on there? So what's happening in Berlin is um, that you have lots of venture capital. Um, of course, it's less <laughs> this year than last year, but it's still a lot. And you have um, you know, the highest amount of unicorns uh, you know, in Europe and the highest density of unicorns uh, in Europe. Um, yeah, so, so it's a disruptor place. So, uh, you know, the corporate conferences take place in Frankfurt and Munich. Uh, the, the real tech conferences take place in Berlin now. Oh, okay. The <laughs> um, so, so if you go to an AWS summit, it would take... <laughs> so, so, you know, um, it, it really depends on who, who your customers are, you know, and, and most people who have the budget and spend it on, on, on tooling are uh, the large enterprises still, you know, while... At the same time, they, they are in the process of being disrupted. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those sound like fighting words for conference hosts. So um, I will definitely check with our startup team where are they seeing the most growth, if you're saying that's really the hub of new tech innovation. But Alex, tell us a little bit about your role at Zalando and for those who are not familiar with that brand, tell us a little bit about Zalando. So Zalando actually was one of the first companies um, or startups back then in Berlin that really made it to a large corporate within, you know, a few years time. 
So it was founded back in 2009 um, and it was founded as an e-commerce company for um, to sell fashion, basically. And over time, it grew massively, expanding to, to nearly all countries in Europe uh, and to now uh, over 50 million active customers uh, that are buying um, in our shop. Um, but these days, it's really a, a platform for fashion brands to also sell on our platform. And, and we provide lots of different services also to them. So... We, of course, sell still directly a lot of our goods, but a lot of things are basically big brands like Adidas or Nike using us as their channel to the customer. Um, and it's also a means for a lot of these brands to digitize their retail, you know, because we, we bring in a lot, lots of functionality, like even delivering for them, you know, for fifth day. We, we do fulfillment services. We, um, we do marketing services. So. In that sort of online e-commerce world that is less familiar. I mean, these days it's better, uh, but, but it's still, it's still, you know, not the home turf of, of many of these large brands. For sure. And even, I mean, there, there's a number of articles, particularly in sports athletic wear, who's performing better, who's having higher inventory holding costs. And we can really go back to, it was a matter of how early these sport brands really digitized right. the differences. So you helped them. What was really magical was after Zalando was founded, you know, it, it almost led to, you know, it, it really led to, to this creation of that ecosystem. So since then, you know, we have lots of unicorns um, and it's now really the number one hub for, for, for new, new uh, ventures and for, for growing ventures in Europe. So, so, you know, it was the first, but it was not the last. It's, it's a very vibrant place these days. Yeah, definitely. And I do think it's also important to recognize. So while you are the head of data at Zalando, you also are a voice in the industry. Some people will be listening to this podcast over YouTube. So I'm looking at all the books you've authored behind you. Um, tell us what is your favorite book and a little bit what you're working on now. So um, my favorite book that I wrote or my favorite book that I read? Yes. <laughs> no, that you wrote. You're allowed. <laughs> Already you're going to be humble here. But no, which, which book would you recommend people start with? Well, you know, you, you, you always love all your children equal. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it depends what you're looking for. So, so, so I wrote four very, very different books. So, so, so um, I think the one, best one to start with is the uh, Ultimate Data and AI Guide. That's all, that was also the one that was selling best. It's actually now um, even um, the standard book at a university in, in uh, South Africa. So they have thousands of students using that as their primary uh, book for a course on on data actually, so so that is really took, it's like 150 FAQs, everything you need to know about data and AI, uh, very accessible. But then you know if you really want to do digital transformations through data and AI, that's the other book that I wrote, which is the top shelf uh, book, um, and that's really my experiences from transforming one of the largest uh, companies uh, um, in Europe, which is Volkswagen Group, where I was you know sort of one of the first. I was one of the first leadership uh, hires actually for the group digitization. And we were a few people, now it's several thousand people. And, and it's, it's, you know, it, it turned from a hardware company to a hardware plus software company. And all that experience I write in the book because, you know, yeah, it's great to know how Netflix does things, but 
how do you bring that to a traditional environment? That's, that's the hard bit, you know. It's good to know what good looks like, but how do you get there? Yeah, and I do think, so at Zalando, you, have, you had the luxury, let's say, of the company being founded in the internet. Um, now, uh, according to your 2022 annual report, 14.8 billion in revenues in euros in 2022. Um, so much more business transacted online. And to your point, Volkswagen manufacturing, manufacturing has been slower to embrace digital transformation. So tell us a little bit about what you see between these two very different industries is the secret to scaling and succeeding. So, you know, it was a very uncomfortable choice to, to make that career move from a traditional company where, where I established myself as a, as a digital leader, data leader, to a tech company that, uh, where I had to re reestablish myself really as leader because it's, it's really a different environment. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm so happy I made that very uncomfortable, inconvenient move back then, career move, uh, which was scary. <laughs> it was really scary. And, you know, because it's, it's sort of leaving stuff behind, you know, like you, establish, you, you work so hard for something, you know, and you establish yourself and then you have to really restart from all over. Um, but I think what, what, what it gives me, and this was the reason why I wanted to do that, it gave me personal growth. You know, during the th almost nearly three years at Zalana, I could see how a tech company operates at scale with data, machine learning, and even with just being very data driven, you know. It's not always fancy machine learning. Very often it's about the day-to-day -day actions that you do based on data rather than based on um, highest person in the room. And that's something I could experience now because, you know, from the inside for several years. Um, so, so I'm in a very, very lucky position now that I've seen both worlds. And I, I also w was transforming the world at Volkswagen because at Volkswagen, we were on the way together. So the teams that we built up were very similar as the ones as they operate at Zalando. So I think my first message here would be you can build up tech teams that are equally powerful as in tech organizations if you let them do so. Like if you don't hinder them, <laughs> if you give them some budget, meaningful tasks, and if you let them innovate on your core business, because that's one of the problems that, that I think a lot of the established companies do. They fear, you know, they fear really the change. Yeah. The management fears the change. Um, and one effect of that, one consequence that I could observe was, and this is something that we had to fight back extremely hard at Volkswagen, is that you're put into a lab somewhere uh, at the side of the business and you're not allowed to tinker with the core business. Because what, what tech companies do, they tinker with the core business until they find out ways how to use tech better than anyone else, which is hard to copy. And that's what makes them strong. But for that, you need to be allowed to go into the core of the machine and not just be, you know, if you look at the car, you need to go into the engine and not be at the wheel. If you're just playing with the wheel, you never be able to, to use technology at, at full scale. Um, and so, so I would not underestimate that, um, that barrier. If management doesn't let you go to the heart of the company and use tech to really innovate at the heart, nothing will happen. Nothing substantial will happen. Um, and so that was the biggest fight. And I, I'm really glad that that was a major success. It took a lot. 
It was a lot of sweat, but at Volkswagen, we, we created after a while really a large software company. There was not a lab that was creating the new OS operating system for the vehicles and also the new platform for retail, you know, to connect all the car dealers, which are all, of course, very analog traditionally. Yeah. So there's a couple things to unpack there, Alex, um, the differences in industry, but also the fear of tinkering or messing up, let's say the cash cow, the core of what is making um, a company's money today. And that may not continue in the future. And we talk a lot about how to organize. You said, don't don't stick these innovation people off to the side in a lab, but also this becomes incentives and culture. And there have been some articles, some research, some indices even that have cited the culture, particularly in Germany, as being a barrier to innovation. Um, And I think it depends on which sector, And for example, the Digital um, Economy uh, Index, DESI, actually um, placed Germany um, for corporations out of all the EU countries as 15th for digitization. And they cited some of these cultural issues, resistance to change, you're now working in a very different sector, but do you agree with this or what do you think this root cause is? That's also a lot of things uh, that we need to unpack, but <laughs> I, I would in general agree with you. And I also agree, of course, with the facts. <laughs> um, now, what gives me hope? Um, I would say um, um, really the Berlin bubble that we created over the past 10 years. So Berlin is now the fastest growing, yeah, for the past 10 years, probably the fastest growing economically wise city, um, at least in Germany, maybe even in, in Europe. It's, uh, it's been exploding and the culture here is fundamentally different than the culture um, in the rest of Germany, which, you know, made us really a disruptor in a lot of sectors with, um, with companies that actually scaled um, globally provide, or at least in Europe, but m- many of them uh, globally, like HelloFresh, maybe you have heard of them, they are a package yes. meal kit company. We use HelloFresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm working, to, you know, I have lots of friends there. Okay. And, you know, and that's that. That's one of these, you know, companies from, from Berlin, you know, and, and you have many of these, uh, you know, in, in fintech, for example, in, in lots of different sectors. Um, and, and, and they are tech, taking a lot of these sectors, uh, and, and reinventing completely the game. Um, we also have technology companies like Salonis. Maybe you heard of them. Very powerful, uh, process mining tool. Yes. I know Salonis process. Um, yeah. Well, that's in Munich, but, but still, you know, those are, those are the, the, the success stories that you haven't seen so much in other countries in Europe. So. What you see is really that divide that you probably see also in the US. You have that Silicon Valley, which has been growing massively. And you had the other established companies that, you know, usually, you know, over the past 10 years probably haven't done so well compared to the others. And you, you start to see that uh, as well in, in, in Germany. So if you look at our stock market, main stock market index, you know, the Dow Jones of Germany, the DAX. You know, you have now several of these players, completely new players that very young companies 
now in that main index. And a lot of the very, very, very established, large uh, companies with a high reputation were kicked out of that index in the last years. Um, and that gives me hope because what you see is creative disrupt uh, destruction. You have some things that pass away and other things that are, are, are coming. Uh, and that's very important for an economy. And that's why I'm not so worried now. You know, I was worried a few years ago. So when I joined Volkswagen, my big mission was, I thought if we, because Berlin was not that big back then, um, I thought we really need to um, transform the large industrial players. Otherwise we don't stand a chance. Yes. And I do see some movements now there. So I do see a shift of mindset of our top executives um, in nearly all companies. Um, you know, some, you would be surprised how data driven some of these CEOs are actually now these days in Germany. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember I had, um, uh, gave a training to, to the CEO of Deutsche Post DHL, which is the German Post, uh, large, large corporate DHL, maybe, you know. Yes. And he, he was so keen on, on putting data everywhere into the corporations to, to optimize, you know, the last mile to optimize the logistics, uh, and, and supply chain and so on. And you, re you really see that, that slowly, but very, very, um, decisively things are changing. So, so I really have hope these days back, back hope, you know, I, I lost hope in a way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, hope, it doesn't sound like you lost total hope. So that's a good thing, but, um, maybe a concern. And I, as you're talking, I'm wondering, so the CEOs, the leaders get it, they value data, but maybe it's at the practitioner level that we need a greater sense of urgency. Because I think back even just last June, when I was doing a class for the Data Warehousing Institute um, and in Germany, and I asked how many were already in the cloud And market-wise, that is now globally between 60% and 70% yeah. are in the cloud. But in Germany, they had only just started or they're still debating, is it Google BigQuery or is it yeah. Snowflake or Redshift? Or maybe they should just stay on premises because of um, risk aversion and things like that. So maybe is it the disconnect between the leaders and the actual practitioners where we have to create a greater sense of urgency. So there, there is a certain tendency to avoid risk, in particular when it comes to data protection and security. Um, and so, so there was a lot of cloud skepticism uh, in Germany. In general, you know, I think people are skeptical first until they get it. And, and once they get it, they run fast. Yes. And I think that's, uh, that's probably part of our culture. And they do it more thoroughly once they... Once they want to do that. Oh, for sure. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so that's probably part of the German culture. Okay. Uh, they are very thorough, but they, you, need to, you need a while until you convince them. And I think the cloud, we really needed a long time to get it, uh, that we actually need to move to the cloud. But at least in the large corporates, you know, if, if I think about our uh, stock market index, the main stock market index companies, I see that shift over the last two years ha had happened. Yeah. What what you shouldn't underestimate is also like when you build a new <laughs> computing center on the ground, that's a long-term investment. So a lot of CIOs were a bit hesitant to move to the cloud because they had that capex as well. Yeah. But I, probably you have that also in the US, that problem. 
Oh, yes, yes. Even there was an article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that our tax service, the IRS, 33% of their cost is on tech debt, on-premises, old code, um, just horrible. And I think, what a what a waste of money. But anyway, Alex, the other reason why we really wanted you on the Data Chief is, as far as I know, uh, Zalando was the first, or at least one of the first, adopters of the Data Bash. So tell us a little bit about how this came into being. What problem were you trying to solve? So I think as Zalando, we had a similar journey as many companies in terms of when we started off with data and also with tech, we've done it quite centrally. So all tech was central, all data was centrally managed. We had, you know, um, as we scaled it, it grew to a team of several thousands of engineers and data people. Uh, centrally. And it, it just didn't uh, work in creating value, as you probably have noticed many companies, if you if you centralize too much or if you keep it central. At some point, you need to make that decision to go decentral. I think our turning point was in 2015, uh, that was before the time I joined, when we, we decided to go decentral. We decided to go, we, it was a program called Radical Agility, and we put nearly all tech into the business units. So um, including data, analytics, and AI. And we just kept the platform, you know, really the things that need to be called platform for developers, for data uh, centrally. And what happens when you do that, and I can tell you that based on that case study as well, it's a very interesting case study. What happens when, when, you, when you go from central to decentral is that suddenly you have an absolute drive for innovation. Everyone is innovating like, like crazy. Everyone starts to build stuff. Everyone starts to think, how can I use data? What application can I do? Because it's, it's so close to the business. Then every business leader thinks, okay, how can I leverage that now for me? So it's quite naturally that leadership in the center cannot make all these great decisions as the leadership, you know, that is close to the business problems, the logistics leadership, the, um, the supply leadership, that the, the category management, basically, um, the customer experience, website teams, they all have great ideas. And with teams going decentral, they can build amazing, valuable applications, they use, they build dashboards for every problem and, and that those dashboards are actually used because they are invented by those people who like they, but that, that need to solve the problem and so on. So you see massive increase of value until you start to build so much stuff that it becomes creative chaos. So you have to start to govern somehow. So, and nobody wants to go back to the central version. Uh, uh, because everyone knows, okay, then we lose all that value. So what should we do? Yeah. And slow, slow and monolithic. That's the other problem yes. with too centralized. Yeah. So then we started to think, okay, how can we strike that balance? And we started actually with engineering, in engineering, not in data and analytics and AI. How can we uh, create that balance, you know, and... And this is when you start to build up strong principal engineering communities, you know, that, that meet and where you have reviews, project stage gates, 
to see the, the, the do things, things uh, fit together. This is when we came up with API first, you know, that whenever you build a microservice, you have to first say, how does it connect? Does it disrupt anything? And so on. So, so lots of great practices in software engineering that were adopted to help you to create, I would say, governance that is not very invasive, that is very, uh, you know, that is about applying practices, ways of working, um, using the same Kubernetes clusters, things like that, you know, which are secured centrally to make sure that security is up and right. Now, we started then to realize, hey, you can, in data, we have the same problem. In data, you know, we were very central. We started to decentralize. And in data, um, the, ca the, the chaos becomes even bigger. So we had, to, the good thing was we had a data lake and we pumped all data into the data lake. The other good thing was all microservices were sending data via uh, a big bus, uh, Kafka, um, into that data lake and also to share um, data across um Uh, from application to application. So this means we didn't have all this kind of point-to-point -point, uh, interface mess, but we really had a nice bus and a data lake with all the data. Now imagine you put all the data into a data lake. It's a big data lake. It's a very big data lake. How do you find stuff? People start to build on top of that data pipelines for analytical purposes and push it back to the data lake. Other people take that, create more data pipelines on top And, uh, you know, and, and also build another data application on top. Some people use that again for operations. It becomes, uh, a, a very interesting, uh, picture when you draw that up. We, we try, we started to draw that up, but we said, okay, it just looks. You can't. Spaghetti. Like <laughs> Spaghetti on Spaghetti. top of a data swamp. <laughs> yes. Now, the great thing was why, why we still were able to handle that as Zalando was because we had great data engineers everywhere and people knew each other. The culture is very collaborative. So people would call each, like chat each other's up and say, Hey, do you know if that is trustworthy? Uh, you know, some people were just long enough there. So they knew all the data and all the teams, but we started to grow so, so fast that even those people started to lose the oversight. Um, so you need a solution. Um, that allows you to operate at that scale, not this, not stop that innovation happening and the decentralized product management and building products, uh, data products, analytics products, AI products, software products, but you want them to still to be able to do that. But those teams need more and more data from other teams. That's naturally. You cannot just work with the data of your own team. So Alex, this is one of the concerns that people afraid of the data mesh have raised is that when you do need data shared across multiple teams and customer master data is a really good example. If I'm one of your customers and I'm buying both shoes and maybe now one of the sports brands, whether it's Adidas or Nike or whatever, you're going to want that across the different lines of business. Otherwise, you risk that I have multiple customer IDs per brand or per region, per country that you operate in. Yeah. So um, how are you accounting for that? And so, so this is how we slowly moved into the data mesh. So a few years back, we then started to, to invest in those central data products for customer, for sales, for, uh, for those very you know, fundamental data sets And we created central data products that uh, 400 teams are using on a daily basis uh, often. And we then realized you cannot build all of these centrally. 
again, because because you are not the ex- the central team is not the expert about logistics. So if there is such a golden data set that you know, as you described, you know, customer is not the only very very important data set. Right. But there are there might be very very important signals from logistics. Is something delivered or not? That's a very important data piece, and you want to have that provided by the people who understand what's inside. That's our learning. Because if it's provided by a central data team and if something changes in the operational system, we don't know and we only know later and too late. And if you have hundreds of applications using that data point and if you have such an incident, you know, like such a change in the, in the source, people might not even notice that something has changed. And they misuse that for their algorithms, for the software products, for informing customers, for the regulators, and you're not allowed to, uh, that to happen. That's why we said, let's find a different way. Instead of centralizing everything, the central team does some of these things like customer sales, uh, uh, partner or partner br- or brands, basically, and so on. Uh, our products, our articles, article master data. Um, and then you, you, um, you look at what are the other very, very highly important uh, data sets. Um, and, and what we've seen is there's really, it's almost like in the Amazon bookstore, you know. You have some books that are selling millions of copies and others just, just selling three copies. So there are some books that are selling more in the Amazon store than probably millions of other books. That's what we've seen in the data sets as well. There are some data sets that are used by far more application um, than any any other uh, data sets. And we realized that the top 100, top 200 data sets are really the ones that matter. Then you have the top 1,000 that are also important. And then the value sort of diminishes. For, you know, theirs might be still important for a particular application, but then a data engineering team can solve that end-to-end for them. That's fine. And in those, we, we looked at where do they come from and started to invest into domains taking ownership for that and serving that as data as a product. So the domains take ownership. The top, let's say, 100 products, are those potentially also owned by the domains? or Correct. Or what does the centralized team do and, and how big is the centralized team versus the decentralized? So we are roughly 20% of the century. So I'm, I'm running the central yes. team. We are roughly 20% of the total population of experts uh, in data analytics and AI uh, centrally. Okay. So it's the long tail, more decentralized. We do have a majority of those products I think if I, we have probably roughly 30, 40% centrally of those most important ones and the rest is decentry right now. But as we would grow that, as we, as we are growing it, you have, you have more and more decentral. Okay. Got it. So if you, you know, if you go from top 100 to top, top 1000, they all will be delivered from the domains basically. And that's the process we're currently in. Okay. Well, I think the other, um, you used an interesting turn a phrase that I think is very useful, governance that is not too invasive. And I I like that phrase because we think of governed or ungoverned, and yet it's degrees of how tightly you govern it. Some we've even said governance is code for no, um, and governance is just a bad word that we should stop using. 
um, because it's created so much friction in that time to value. Alex, you also have some interesting opinions about a data mesh versus a data fabric. Maybe if you want to share a little bit more about that. So first of all, I do believe both concepts have a lot of value and they are very complementary. Um, and I think what a lot of people misjudge is that data mesh is an architecture paradigm and it is not an architecture paradigm. It is a ways of working with data in an organization for scaling and working with data for, for ensuring that people treat data better than they do today, because we know what the situation in most companies is like, uh, how, you know, when you have data at scale, um, it's very, very difficult to keep the quality, keep the documentation, keep lineage, keep, you know, yes. while being agile and fast. That's very, very hard to do that balance. Um, so, so the data mesh gives you that new operating model of how to work with data at a large corp organization where the different pieces of the organization need to share data with each other, you know, because if you don't need data from others, then you don't need data mesh. If you have business units that are completely enclosed and nobody, you know, needs data from the other person, then you don't need data mesh, but you need data mesh with a large corporate and like in our case, you have logistics on the one hand, you have finance, you have, um, our partner business, you have our consumer business, but they all sh need to work off the same data. At the same time, everyone is building applications every day because that's what makes you innovative. This is when you need data mesh. And that, uh, you know, when you, when you really want to solve that problem, moving fast while governing your data properly. Now, data fabric is an architectural paradigm. So you can use the data fabric as an architectural paradigm to improve your data platform, to make it better ready for data mesh, basically. But my prediction would be um, that most companies are jumping on data fabric because technology is easy to buy, culture is difficult to change. Um, and they buy lots of different new semantic layer technologies, which are they all have their reason and value uh, and can help in fulfilling and building the data mesh, but they don't do their real homework, which is changing how we work with data at an organization. And, um, you know, until a few years back, you had an excuse. You could say, hey, data governance, as we know, it doesn't work. I think now we don't have that excuse anymore. It makes you slower. Uh, now you don't have that excuse anymore because we, we see really from, from, from the uh, first years of data mesh that, that it allows you to scale value and be faster while having that governance. So it is doable. Um, and so you have no reason to say, I just need a technology fix because there are organizational paradigms uh, like the data mesh that allow you to achieve data excellence at scale without being completely um, uh, harmful to, to, to any innovation. That's so interesting, Alex. Your observation or your theory that people are buying data fabric because it's easier, because it's technology. And yet, and so I do think there's a truth in that. Um, we do that across technologies. It's easier to change the technology than the people in the culture. 
And I think, you know, that's also what, what's so confusing for, for data leaders. Data leaders are, are really confused by vendors, by technology vendors selling data mesh as a technology because it's easy. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's understandable because we are humans. A human would rather spend $25,000 on, on a surgery than $100 uh, a month on a gym because it's faster, easier. You don't have to pain. You don't have to sweat. You don't have to change your lifestyle and so on. That's how we humans are. I mean, it's understandable. We do like quick fixes. Yeah, it's true. Well, we've talked a lot about culture and data platforms and how you operate them. Your ultimate goal, both across your career at Volkswagen and now at Zalando, is to use data for insight and action. Um, some would call this decision intelligence. How are you making this happen at Zalando? So I think the most important bit is really making data radically free as long as it's okay to share data. Um, and then have, you know, build the skills and, 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 and get people basically everywhere that can actually w work with that data. That's one part of the equation. I think the other part of the equation is really to have executives that are data driven. And so either you hire data-driven executives as a supervisory board, that's one way, or as an executive, you know, I think, I think if, you, if you want to strive in the next 20, 10, 20 years, you need to become data-driven. There's no chance. Like if you have three years back left, maybe that's okay. But I think the next 10 years will really uh, require a lot of data-drivenness, which means that, um, to give you one example, you know, we have all our executives sitting in a room looking at problems with the customer, you know, any, any sort of bigger customer problems along the way every week, you know, and solving these issues together, looking at data, massive amounts of data. So, and you, you just need to make sure that people want to look at data and, and then that p data can be provided. So we have analysts all over the place who actually can build stuff. We have the data lake data warehouses in place that make that data available. And I think, you know, the hard bit, the hardest bit is really now um, ensuring that everyone works off proper data. You know, I, I mentioned the legacy issues that we have from before when we were very radically agile and cleaning that up. Mm -hmm. But but I think we're we on a very good pathway there. Yeah. And you mentioned 10, 10 years. I don't think it'll be 10 years. I, I think as we talked about the rate of creative destruction, that rate has accelerated so I, I would narrow that three, three to five max. Yeah. I would also say now with, with what's happening at the moment, I think it's probably a, a, a four to seven years time frame where things will radically change. I think there's, there's good news for everyone who doesn't have thousands of engineers. Um, you just need to allow people to create some of that culture within your organization and let them tinkle at the heart of your enterprise responsibly, of course. Uh, and I think they can be extremely productive because with, with, with all the uh, generative technologies coming up, I mean, they can do half of the coding. They can tell you how to set up an AWS cluster. They can tell you how to keep it secure. Um, as they can program the code for you. Yeah. So I think, and I mean, we, we just saw the beginning. If you, if you look at the next three years, that will explode. I think in, uh, let's see how software development will look like in five years. I, I cannot predict that. Um, I, I, I'm usually, you know, I'm a bit more cautious. So, so one of the books that I wrote was uh, here. 
marketing with smart machines. And that was, that was when I, um, in 2012, I was working for, uh, 2013, I was working for IBM at the Worldwide Advanced Analytics Center. And we had Watson being commercialized back then. Mm -hmm. And so I was super enthusiastic. And, and that book was really about things I thought will happen within the next two, three years uh, in marketing. You know, how, how nobody needs to write um, text copies anymore, how all social media posts will be generated automatically, how all learning will be completely revolutionized by Watson. It did not happen, No, but I sort of uh, forgot about this book and I put that into, you know, threw it away because I thought, hey, that was a bad book. But now I, I brought it back because um, everything that's written there is now possible with ChatGPT. Yeah, yeah. So we were just not ready back then. So sometimes it takes a bit, but then you have, again, a massive sort of jump ahead. Yeah, so the right idea, just a little earlier. So what are... I, can you describe something that maybe um, you are either working on or that you are so excited about to apply? And it doesn't have to be chat GPT, just any of the generative AI models, whether it's the images like Dolly or, um, you know, Google's BERT, the, any of the LLMs. Where do you think the first profound use case in retail will be? I think in, in retail, what, what I observe is a lot of things happening in marketing. So everywhere where you create content, obviously, um, that has a huge impact. Like you can create images these days, you can create text. And, and it's not, I, I think it, it's, it's important to, to see, I think one of the, the realizations that I had working with ChatGPT was that you think first it does, can't deliver what you need. Uh, and, and that's true. It can't automatically deliver what you need. It can only do that if you co-create with ChatGPT or with other generative technologies. So we are not at the stage of general AI where um, it creates everything for you in the perfect way and and you're out, the human is out of the loop. But I think right now we are in, for the next seven years, it's really about humans working with machines really, really side by side. And, and, and those companies who do that will, will really succeed. Uh, uh, and, 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 you know, we'll have an advantage if they do that faster. Oh, yeah. So to create a good marketing text, you still need a human, but a human who knows how to operate the machine and have really that creative spark. Because no sparing partner is so fast as ChatGPT4 so far on that planet. Yeah, the human in the loop is essential, not only for the co-creation side of things, but also for the ethical implications and trust. Um, we have to have that. Well, Alex, this has been a very informative, broad discussion. Let's do a hard pivot to a lightning round. Um, favorite activity when you're not working with data. I love surfing and it's, it, it's, it's very complimentary. Oh, you love surfing. Where? <laughs> I love the Canary Islands actually and Portugal. Oh, oh, oh yeah. The waves off um, the Portugal, the Southern coast are very right. dramatic, very dramatic. Nice. So if you were CEO for a day, what would you tell the data team? I think I would tell... I would ask actually the data team, what can I do? How can I help you? So you can deliver next year, 10 times the value you do today with data. 
I love that. One word to describe ChatGPT. Mind-blowing. Fill in the blank. Data is? I think it's like water. You need that to survive. It needs to be everywhere. Yeah, I like that better than oil. Um, I feel like... uh, I feel like I should ask you who your favorite football team is. Uh, that's controversial, but I'm a Munich fan. <laughs> <laughs> and what about any mentors, books, thought leaders that you listen to that have shaped your career? So in the data space, mm, uh, Tom Ratman was actually my long-term uh, mentor uh for years now and so he shaped me quite a lot how i think about data and organizations actually and to see the big picture and so yeah definitely um personally um one of my best friends is actually has created founded the largest um data consultancy in in germany um and and he's also an inspiration to me i mean the way he he has built such a business you know uh, from after after university was amazing and I learn from him every day. And yeah, so that's sort of the two people that I would refer to. Okay. Well, who, you didn't give his name, did you? Who's, what's his name? It's Alexander Tam. So. Okay. Thank you. It's the, also the, the company is named um, <laughs> the same way. It was just because he did, was not creative enough and he needed to found a company fast. <laughs> he needed a marketer to help him. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't afford at that time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. How about a song that pumps you up? I, I love, uh, to, to pump me up, I love uh, like Alliance in the Wild. <laughs> okay. And is, um, I don't know this song, but we have a Data Chief um, playlist that I will will cool. add it to. So I will listen to it afterwards. Um, uh, what about a moment in your career, uh, maybe a mistake or a detour? And what did you learn from that? So... I think I think you know you you learn from detours the most. Uh, lots of them. I think I think you know. <laughs> I had a. I'm I'm just thinking about the, the moment, but I think I had really a very key moment when I was at Volkswagen Group, and I was I was helping to from scratch to come up with the idea of how we do we build the digital platforms for for. Uh, the, the big tech platforms for for Volkswagen Group, you know, for the vehicles, for the uh, retail, and for for Industry 4.0. And you know, I got that thing, you know, up to board approval. Got that thing up to supervisory board approval. We um, even later found, founded a company. But there was a point in time where the establishment sort of kicked me out of the project, like you know, like very softly, gently, and. And this is, you know, this is what what I learned from that is like when things, you know, people first try to fight you, and, <laughs> and once they cannot fight you, they they will, we will take it away from you. <laughs> so, they, um, yeah. and I think it's okay. And I think what what is the learning behind it? You know, uh, because you know that was sort of a detour, but at the same time, it was a learning. I think I think in hindsight, I think what sort of I in my gut, uh, I knew this will happen. And I was okay with that because I knew that's the only way, you know, how to make that transformation happen. If the establishment takes what you do and <laughs> runs it as, 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 their, as theirs, uh, uh, you know, so I was pushing them so hard until they couldn't resist anymore. And they said, okay, now we do it. Uh, um, but please, please let us, 
uh, do that. And so, so I, I think my, my learning here, my personal learning here is to, to everyone who's in a transformative role is to, to be okay with that and to don't see that as a, as a failure, but rather as a success, because this is when you achieve the transformation. That's a really insightful advice. If they can make it their own, then um, that's good. So it doesn't matter who claims the success. If somebody can make it their own, then you've really succeeded in changing them. It's better than having them when you said they were taking it from you. I'm like, well, uh, uh, or when they cut you out, did they resist the change? That is often when somebody leaves an organization because they give up. They're like, you're not going to, you're not really going to change. And that's hard. And so I think, you, you know, what, what I was able to do is push that over the edge so they cannot push that back, you know, like, yeah. And I was using a momentum to really push that as far out as possible so they could not go back. Yeah, that's great. Well, Alex, one final question, and you can choose depending on the mood that you're in in the moment, but either something that you are grateful for right now, maybe beyond, of course, the obvious, but or something that has truly made you laugh out loud recently. Well, so the laugh out loud is very easy because I have an eight months uh, baby and he's making me laugh out loud every day, <laughs> every morning when he starts laughing, <laughs> he sees me. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that I'm really grateful for is, you know, I was able to, to go into the, I would say, new data space. You know, data has been around for a long time, uh, but I was, I was able to join the whole movement when, when big data was just going off the ground. So I was one of the early people uh, in that game. And I, I'm so grateful and lucky and happy that I could do that because this way I could meet so many amazing people around the world and have all that experiences, you know, on a, I would say still fairly young age, uh, that, that, that I can use, you know, to, and, and what I'm doing now is actually, this is what I, you see here is I'm, I'm building up a data masterclass program actually to, to share some of that. Uh, but I realized, you know, I, I'm not the only one to have stories to share. So I'm looking really at key people, um, you know, that I think have great stories to tell and to find ways via events and via, you know, um, um, online trainings and, and, and online masterclasses to really share that. So. So I'm currently building up a data masterclass program for that in Europe. And, and that keeps me super excited and, uh, uh, because it's really a way to, to give back to the community. Um, and, and hopefully to get over some of the challenges you described in our culture. That is not only a Europe, you know, German culture, but I think it's also a wider European problem that we have. Yeah. Alex, thank you so much for giving back to the community. I can't wait to see what these masterclasses look like. And of course, enjoy this special time with your son. And thank you for being on The Data Chief. Thank you very much. It was a big honor to speak with you and see you, Cindy. Likewise, Alex. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. <laughs>